Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Matt Reeves' newest film, Worf the Planet of the Apes. As the third installment in the Planet of the Apes franchise reboot, the film continues the saga of Caesar, a chimpanzee with human-like intelligence and emotion, who leads a colony of equally improved apes who are forced into a struggle with an army of humans. As tensions rise, both sides are headed for an epic battle that will determine which species will rule the Earth. In addition to War for the Planet of the Apes and its prequel, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Mr. Reeves' credits include the feature films Let Me In, Cloverfield, and The Pallbearer, the pilot episodes of the series Conviction and Felicity, and episodes of the series Miracles, Gideon's Crossing, Homicide Life on the Street, and Relativity. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Reeves spoke with director Drew Goddard about filming War for the Planet of the Apes. During their conversation, Mr. Reeves discusses his desire to create a mythic interpretation of Caesar, the surprising freedom of directing performance capture, and the grueling technical process of translating Andy Serkis and the rest of the cast's performances to the screen. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. This is so exciting. I'm Drew, by the way. This I'm Matt. Is Matt. Hi. And um, we're so happy you're here. We're so happy to talk about this movie a little bit. I'm thrilled because I've known Matt now for over a decade. And God. I know, it's been a while. Um, we've worked together, and more importantly, I've just known him, and I've known how special he is. And uh, when I see this movie, I see so much of who you are. And I have this whole book of questions, but honestly, as I was sitting here re-watching it again tonight, I realized I really only have one question, and that's, how the hell did you make this movie, Matt? I don't, <laughs> I don't understand it because it, it's so breathtaking to me and so nuanced and complicated and interesting. And it's, it starts with just the decision to make, I don't, I don't know even how I would describe it, a, a biblical... A Darwinian biblical <laughs> epic. Darwinian biblical. That's also sort of a Western at times. It is, yeah. And also just this nuanced meditation... Meditation on what it is, on what war does to people, and yet it's all done with apes. It's so extraordinary. And so I, I'd like to just start with the basics. How did how did this start? You'd done uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, yeah. On Dawn, um, I had never done a studio blockbuster, and I had been approached about a few different um, movies. And for me, I always turned them down because I always assumed that. Um, it would be entering into the machine that was going to sort of make you totally anonymous. And my big fear in that is always that I, the only way I do whatever I do is that I have a kind of emotional compass. And if I feel like I can understand something, then I know where the camera goes and I know how to talk to the actors. Like, that's the only thing that tells me. So it's like my basic survival mode. And so I always was saying no. And um, they approached me about, they had 
Fox had approached me about a few things, and I always said no because I was like, ah, I don't. Somebody's going to want to do that movie, and they're going to be the right person for that movie because that's their thing. And then when they approached me about Planet of the Apes, I was like, oh my god, that's my thing. I love this. <laughs> and then they sh told me what the story was they were planning to do, and I was like, oh, that's not my thing. And so um, I thought I was going to be going, and they said, uh, no, wait what would you do? And I said, well, that's a terrible question because if I tell you what I'll do, you're going to let me do like 62% and then you're going to say, and then you have to do the crazy like showdown in Candlestick Park or whatever <laughs> weird thing you wanted to do that I didn't want to do that I don't understand. I won't know where to put the camera. It'll be terrible. So they said, no, just think about the story you would do for like a week and come in and pitch it to us. And I pitched it to Emma and at the end of the meeting, she goes, that sounds great. Are you in? And I was like, what, what does that mean? She goes, I'm telling you, we'll let you make that movie. And I was like, no, you will not. I said, what is the what is the catch? And they said, well, the catch is that we were going to make another movie with Rupert, and he ended up not wanting to do the movie. We couldn't come to terms. So this movie was supposed to have three years, because they're really hard to make, and I'd never done performance capture or anything on this scale. Um, and now a year of that is gone. So you have to make the movie you're talking about from go right now, and it has to come out on that release date two years from now. And I was like, I thought that sounded okay. I had no idea that that was crazy. Um, and But one of the great things that happened through the process was that I became confident about what it was. I got really excited about that world. I loved it. And um, as we were, they were really happy with it. And as we came to the end, they said, hey, listen, before this movie comes out, we just want to tell you we would love you to come back and do the next one. And I was like, wow, that's great. And they said, um, you did so well on two years. What if we did this for two years? And I said, I couldn't. There's no way. So we took three years, and Mark Bomback and I um, sat down and just tried to figure out, because I knew what the story was coming in to Dawn that I would do. And on this one, I knew that I wanted it to be a mythical, I wanted to take Caesar's character and push him into the realm of the mythic. I wanted to make him like the seminal figure of all ape history, the beginning of an ape religion. You would look back and say, oh, these are the events that make him the legend. And, um, and so he, we wanted him to be this kind of ape Moses. And that's really all we knew. So we spent a year writing the script, and um, and it was a great process. We watched a lot of movies. Yeah, this is because this is one of those things you always romanticize in Hollywood. You always want, as you're making movies, to screen movies for your crew and, and people at Fox. And I know you actually did this on yeah. the Fox lot. You were doing this. What were some of the movies you screened? We screened uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. We screened, um, oh, you know, biblical epics like Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur. We screened Out Outlaw Josie Wales was a really important one. Um, you know, one of the things I thought was so interesting and, and what I thought kind of applied to the story was that if you're going to do a war story, a war stories, you know, the, the conflict that's sort of the context is one thing, but the, the it's the, all of the interpersonal stuff that really matters. And at the core, I think Caesar's strength in all of these stories has been that he has tremendous empathy and he has understanding of both species and that that has been his strength. And you see him grappling with his rage and all these things, but he's always kind of finding the sort of measured, empathetic way out. And Koba, at the end of Dawn, he, um, there was no way he could have lived with humans. He was basically, you know, he was tortured by them. He was like a concentration camp victim. There was no way he could say, hey, why don't you live with these humans. There was no, and, and so it meant that Caesar's empathy had only gone so far. He couldn't really live in Koba's shoes. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if we could take him and push him to a place where his greatest strength um, 
he's in danger of losing, which is that he, for the first time, the extremity of war is going to push him to a place where he's going to lose the ability to empathize with the human race, and, and that that would be what the war story would be about, because obviously the degree to which we lose the ability to empathize with our adversaries is the degree to which we can destroy them, and we can demean them, and we can see not ourselves in the people who we are in conflict with, and that's what leads to, I think, the great, I mean, that's, it's so weird how so many of those details, not that we're in a war situation, so to speak, in an overt way like the movie, although there are wars, but just that politically, so much of the way the world is started getting in sync with the movie that we started doing, that was really weird, but um, well, it was I not think intentional. It, it may suggest that you're dealing with timeless themes here, for better well, or worse. I mean, we, I, I wanted to be very mythic, so it was, we were trying to do a kind of timeless war story. And it felt like the question of empathy, especially for Caesar, to put him on a journey where um, he essentially would come to understand exactly how Koba felt, to have his heart filled with revenge and to see if he'd be consumed by it or if he could transcend it. And if he could transcend it, that was his test. If he could transcend it, then he would become the ape Moses. It's amazing. So as, the, as you're dealing with these themes, how does that become a script? What is your process like when you're working with Mark? Well, he and I, we watched, we watched, uh, there was a, there's a, he came out for a month. He lives in New York. So he and I watched movies in a, in a screening room literally every day. The first part of the day, we would watch a movie. We watched like Empire Strikes Back. We watched all those movies talking about. And then we watched all the Planet of the Apes movies. People thought that we were doing in Dawn, that we were doing, uh, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, which actually, I don't know that I'd ever seen, even though I was a huge Planet of the Apes fan. And we watched Battle, we were like going, oh, Sort of looks like we did battle. It was really weird. But we watched all these movies. Um, and then what we'd do is in, in, in the afternoon, we'd have lunch. And then in the afternoon, we would just start putting up cards and things and talking about, you know, the characters and our story. And it would just start to evolve. There were little details, a lot of little details in Planet of the Apes that somehow seemed... One of the things I found really exciting about the fact that the 68 movie exists and these movies in relation to them is that we're not in a literal same universe because Rise changes the timeline. 5,000 years of evolution hasn't happened. But that world is a kind of signpost that you're moving toward. And the great thing is that the narrative what has been removed because the great ending, the Rod, the Rod Serling genius stroke, you know, Statue of Liberty ending, you can never do that again. So you don't have to. And as a result, it means that our story is not about what happens, but how did it happen, which means that the story is totally about motivation and character. And, um, and so that, those little details, it was like, well, how, you know, in the 68 movie, the humans are mute cattle. How does that happen? And we started thinking about uh, the virus. And then, you know, we did some research and the, the, um, the Spanish flu, there's, there's a kind of theory that there was a second wave of it that had a different effect and people had kind of catatonia. And, and so we started thinking, oh, maybe there's another wave of this virus that all of these survivors who were immune to that virus, they're still carrying it. And now it's starting to, to mutate. And as it mutates, it's starting to rob them of their ability to be human in the way that we think of it. And so there, so Nova is not Nova, but she's in a dialogue with the, the Nova from the 68 movie to say, ah, oh, this is how we get there. So there are all these little things that we kind of got inspired about and we just put that together and then Mark went back. So we spent about four weeks doing that. Mark went back to New York and then we would Skype. I would go to my office. He went to his. We both had our computers hooked up to a thing called Screen Hero. We could literally share the, the we could both write on Final Draft. So we could write on each other's uh, computers. We had Skype. So I had this little picture of Mark about this big next to the thing and we just 
we just wrote all day and we did that for a year. It was great. And then at some point, you have to become the director because the writer and the director are very different jobs. Are you doing that while you're still writing or do you, because when I look at this movie, it seems like it has a tremendous amount of prep that required. And so how do you it pass did. that off? Well, here's the great thing. Um, they, 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 they said, you know, hey, listen, we don't know about this three years thing. We still think you should do it in two years. And I was like, well, you'll see because we won't be ready. <laughs> and we pitched half the movie. So I went and I was like, here's the movie. And it, we pitched to the point where the colonel cat catches them, you know, they've captured. And they were like, ah. And then um, and I was like, okay, we'll see you in a little while. And they were like, oh, we don't have the whole story. And I was like, no, so I guess we can't really do it in two years. <laughs> and then um, we came back and we did the rest. And we actually had, this is the crazy thing. It's the opposite of Dawn. On Dawn, we were still writing that script in post. I changed the ending of Dawn, this is the great thing about performance capture, four weeks before the movie had to be done and locked so that it could be released. And so I was like, oh, this shouldn't be on the Golden Gate Bridge, and there shouldn't be warships. Like, you should be at the base of this tower. You should feel the weight of, of all of your people looking at you, and you realize that you have the responsibility of their lives on your shoulders as you move toward a war that you never wanted. And so we should do that at the base of the tower. I called up Andy. I said, hey, Andy, go to your studio, and I'll look at you on Skype. I'll come in at 9 in the morning, and we'll do some takes of him walking down and playing that whole scene. I chose a take. Four weeks later, we had the shots, and then we released the movie. So we were still bit by bit rewriting line by line, recapping people's performances throughout the whole movie all the way up to the end. On this movie I did something that I only ever had happen on one movie because when we were working together and you wrote Cloverfield that was crazy because we were prepping the movie without the script which is the craziest thing of all time. Fault. That was totally my We fault. had yeah. an outline and I would pitch it to Martin, who is the production designer, who Drew has worked with as well, who's a great production designer. And he would be like, this is not a movie. What are we doing? And, uh, and so we would work through like that. But this, um, we actually had the script at the beginning of prep. It was like, hey, here it is. And the crazy thing is the script that Mark and I wrote is the movie you guys just saw, which is a very rare experience, especially in a movie like this. It's It's got fewer scenes. Like, of course, the movie was too long. I mean, it, this is already a long movie, and if you can imagine the three-hour and five-minute cut, that's, of course, what we had, and that movie was unreleasable, but it, we, we wrote it, and that's what it was. So when we went, I'll tell you, it's interesting, because for me, I there is directing that goes into the writing for me, because... I, and you do this, I mean, I, I write things as I'm trying to figure out how to shoot them. So like the opening shot of the movie was written into the script. Like that thing where you're moving up the hill and then suddenly these helmets start coming in and the whole thing. I was like, we gotta figure out the way into this movie. And so there are a lot of shots written in. And then what I started doing um, very early on as I started boarding the movie with actually uh, a board artist who I met on Cloverfield and who did Let Me In With Me, and then did Dawn, and then also, um, his name is Josh Shepard, and, um, and we just started boarding stuff, and then I did something which I was very unsuccessful at on Dawn, which was previs. So, because these effects are so expensive, every, like, I mean, it, they're really expensive. Like every uh, four seconds, it's really expensive. But in any case, let's put it this way, the, exp the expense of the effects 
are it was considerably more than the shooting of the movie. I mean, the, the, the budget is over half the budget goes to the effects because basically, if you can imagine that your main characters don't exist in their final form until you have like a village of artists do the work to translate the performances you've been getting into these photoreal apes, it's a crazy process. So um, that didn't work for me on Dawn because as a director, my favorite thing is working with actors. And when you are doing scenes that are about, like, you know, the great thing about performance captures, I was worried that it was going to be like like Cloverfield in this sense, which is like, hey, you're going to play to the mark, and then I've got to plan every shot out to a T, and then, but actually it's just the opposite. It's, it's just about capturing performance. So I could get to the set and say, Andy, you don't feel like you want to stand here, do you? And he goes, no, I'd like to be over here. I said, great. I can move the whole cast of hundreds of apes who are really about six guys because you can only capture 12 people at once all those performances are, are are there i go back into the volume and i get them but on the set when i'm shooting big crowd scenes it's basically the main actors and then i've got like one guy that represents 20 over here one guy and so i can shuffle that around very quickly on dawn i improvised throughout i changed what we were doing day to day and the, the studio thought i was crazy i thought for sure i was going to get fired and but really what I was doing is making it like we were making an independent movie. I was like, well, we're just working with the actors. And what, what we had done is, because of the effects and how expensive they were, Fox, especially with me, I mean, I'd never done a studio blockbuster movie, so they're like, well, we don't know what this guy's going to do. So they wanted us to previs every single effect shot. But that means if you and I have a conversation like this, two apes just having a conversation, we uh, had to storyboard and, and, and viz that. And the problem is, is that there was so much to viz, and these artists, you know, who some of them were terrific artists, but they're in a room somewhere, and I'm on the set, or I'm over working with Mark, or I'm doing some kind of stuff, and I look at this thing, and I go, yeah, I'm not going to shoot the scene like that. And so I threw out 95% of the boards, and the, not the boards, but the, uh, the viz for that. We vizzed every scene. And so, and I was like, because, you know, part of the thing is when you're directing, you get on the set, you take the finder, the actor's here, and then I'm looking and I go, oh, Andy, if you just take one step to your left, I've got a great shot here, and then I can get Karen over there, and then, and that's what you do, right? You're just making a movie. You can't do that with previs. I figured out on this movie how to do that with previs. And it was really, first of all, one thing I did was the opening sequence totally previs. And if you looked at the previs, it would look very much like that. So we actually did have a significant amount of prep on this movie where I used the work that we did with the previs artist. But what I did was I used, because um, I actually, the thing is, I actually, I asked JJ, so I called up JJ, and I said, um, I said, JJ, Previs, I suck at it, what do we do? And he goes, yeah, because Previs sucks. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah, it's terrible, don't ever use Previs. He goes, you know what I do? I refuse to make it good, because that way nobody ever looks at it and says, well, you didn't do that. And I'm like, oh, I don't think that's going to work for me. <laughs> and, then I, so, and then I asked Steven Spielberg, who was making BFG at the time, and he said, oh, well, I had a volume set up in my, in my garage, and all summer I just sat and I completely planned out every shot. And I was like, I can't do that either. So, But what I did do for me that worked is I found out a way to do the process that I wanted to do with the finder, which was I didn't want somebody else to interpret Josh's boards that we had worked on. I'd given him notes about what I wanted and he had ideas and then we'd refine the boards. And then what happens is an artist gives you his version of that. He ch gives you his choice of lens for that. I didn't want any of that because I knew I would throw it away. I needed to find it in the same organic process. So what I did was I worked with the artist. I said, can you bring me into, we, we like that whole set, we shot the opening scene coming up uh, 
a logging incline, and a very inhospitable place to shoot, but it looked perfect for what we were doing. And so we LIDARed, we scanned that whole area, and we built it in 3D. And then what I did was I set the, the positions with the actors, or not the actors, but the, the, the models of the actors, and then instead of having the, the previs artist choose the angles, I sat there with the, with the guy who was a previs artist, and I said, okay, let's put on a 50. And then we went and we found all the angles. And including like that shot where we're looking down on the cable cam and all this stuff. Because one of the things we figured out was there was no way to shoot moving up the hill the way I want. I wanted that to look like the beginning of um, uh, Thin Red Line or something, like Malik, like the cameras moving across the field, the landscape. And they had you know stuff on cranes and they had these crane arms and all that kind of stuff. This was not like, we, this was the logging area. We couldn't get any of that in there. So somebody came up with a great idea, which was what if we put a cable cam in there and we, re, we actually put slack in the cable. And this is something that they'd actually done um, because they not that long before us, the Revenant had shot up there. And Emmanuel Lebeski had done this thing. They put the, they put the thing on, the th and instead of doing Steadicam, they did cable cam with an operator, and they were moving it on the cable cam, but it was loose enough that an operator could guide it. And so I was like, oh, now we're going to have these pick points, and we're going to set this all up. I could get some other shots. So we did, this, we did the shot that was the shot that I had planned, but then I was like, oh, can we look? And we found that shot. Um, I was like, let's go up there. Let's look at it on a 28. And we looked down, and we got that shot that's looking down and then finding the... So each of those shots was done because I treated previs, instead of having them do the whole animation, I chose all the lenses and angles as if we were on the set before they did any animation. Then they did animation, and I would give some notes on that, but it would be like what I wanted, because I would say, oh, hey, you put the 50 on good, and that's the lineup, that's what I want. And, and that worked really well, and I, and I also said, and this was the other good thing about it being my second movie with Fox on this, I was like, and we're not gonna do a single scene that's performance-driven. I'm not gonna do a scene where me and Drew are having a conversation as apes. I won't do that. And so we didn't do any of those scenes. Those scenes I did the way I did on Dawn. I said, that's going to be a waste of money. We wasted millions of dollars of previs on Dawn. I mean, the thing about this movie is that this movie cost essentially the same as the last movie, but it was much larger in scale. We had, the last movie, we had human scenes we could go to. So I could actually get Jason Clark and Carrie Russell. We could shoot a scene, and we knew that we weren't spending, you know, $50,000 every four seconds. And... This one, it was like, okay, I want to do a full ape point of view movie. There's not going to be a scene in this movie that doesn't have apes in it. And we were able to do it because of the planning, because I understood the process. And anyway. Well, and there's a, there's a third component to this, which is your actors. Uh, you know, we, I had the, the pleasure of seeing a cut of this movie with no visual effects in it. And I, I hope you release that someday so that people can see. Uh, what it is like to actually, your, you can see your process. And what's you saw Planet of the Mocap Actors. Yeah, and what's yeah. incredible is it's everyone's in leotards, you know, and it looks ridiculous. And two minutes Thanks. in, yeah, and two minutes in, I forgot that there weren't visual effects because, uh, you know, Andy Serkis and Terry Notary and the rest of your kid, Karen Carnival, it, like, they're so incredible with what they're doing there. Yeah, they, they're amazing. And I don't know that because they are then covered over. By computers. Well, people don't get it. And what's so great yeah. about it is that this is why, see, on Dawn, I gave myself a crash course. I was like, wait a minute. Because what was interesting is on Rise, watching that movie, it was the first time I knew who Andy was. And I'd, I'd admired his work. I, you know, I thought Gollum was great. But Gollum isn't a character that you get emotionally connected to. He's one you become fascinated with. And you, you become, he, he's, he's an incredible character, but he's not you. 
And the amazing thing for me and Rise was you are Caesar. And it was the first time that I'd seen a CG creation where I had emotional identification that was stronger with that creation than anybody else in the movie. And I was like, how does that happen? I'm not sure I understand that. So I asked, I said, I want to see every scene of Caesar, and I want to see every shot of Andy, and I want to see how it was done. And literally, like six shots in, I was like, oh, I got it. He's just amazing. And that's really what it was. And it was such a relief because what it meant was that I wasn't going to be directing people to look at you know, tennis balls and marks, I was gonna be directing an actor. And we ended up, this is so great for me, I got to do two movies with Andy. I, for five years, I've worked with Weta and Andy and these great people who, you know, Karen and Terry. It's a great experience and what's great about it is that it really is not any different at the beginning um, from shooting an independent movie with actors you love. I mean, you just, you're setting up the scene and I'm like, oh, what does it feel like? Oh, okay, there's an angle there. And you shoot the scene like that. Now, everything you do after that is a nightmare. <laughs> everything you do after that is horrible. But that first moment is all driven by creating an environment the way you would on any other movie, working with terrific actors. And Andy, I'm not kidding you when I tell you, he just is one of the best actors in the world. I really believe that. He's certainly one of the best actors I've worked with. I just think he's incredible. And the fun thing in writing this one was knowing that everything we were going to do was going to be Andy. Like that, that emboldens you. It says, oh, well, he's going to be great. I don't even know what to say in the scene. We just know he's going to be amazing. And he was. And the thing about it is, is for people who don't totally understand the process, like that performance you're seeing, that is Andy. And the genius of the process is that that's his performance. And yet the other part of it that is so incredibly painstaking and hard to get is the way he's rendered on Caesar's face. And that is about incredible artistry at Weta. Those guys are interpreting his performance onto a different anatomy, right? So Andy's face looks like Andy. He doesn't look like Caesar. And they take little details from his face so he does look like Caesar. Everything you feel based on a performance is all how the shapes express themselves on an actor's face. Oh, I can see what he's feeling. Well. Caesar's anatomy is not the same as Andy, so how do they do that? It's a translational process, and we sit there and go shot by shot until, and it literally takes over a year. We're in post, so we're, it takes us about a year to write the script. We shoot in about eight months. We're, we're, in, we're in post for a year and three months, and that whole time, we are going shot by shot, and a shot comes in. We put up Andy on one side of the screen, or Karen, or Terry, and we put up the Caesar animation on the other, and I say, oh, God, Caesar looks really angry the way that Andy does, but he's not quite as sad as Andy. How do we get that? And they go, oh, yeah, because Andy has that thing in his brow, but Caesar's brow is different. This is not going to be easy. And I was like, yeah, we got to get that. And then we do it shot by shot. And we have, we have 1,400 ape shots. Yeah, and each of those you've watched how many iterations of? You know, oh, my God. Thousands of iterations. Yeah, of we shots. just do, I mean, yeah. How, yeah, how we, do you maintain your endurance? Because... That's one thing I'm, I'm amazed at. I'm watching you through this process. I, I was talking to Emma Watts, who's the head of Fox, and she said, my favorite part about Matt Reeves is that his is the only car on the Fox lot that I'm sure will still be there when I'm leaving for the night. Because, and she's like, your car is there. I mean, And she makes fun point, of my car, too. Which well, is sure, yeah. that's a different story. But at a certain point, you're, this becomes almost a 24-hour job for you. It is. I mean, the way my, the process works... And my wife is here, she knows she basically, this is the most we're seeing each other in the past three years. Um, because what happens is, uh, when we're writing, it's great. You know, Mark and I, we finish at about six, and I come home, and we have, you know, we have dinner, you know, with my son, and it's great. Then we start shooting, and of course, that's 
crazy. But the post, I see on any other movie, you get into post and you start to get a little bit of control back again. You have the punch, the crazy thing at the end where suddenly everyone's working 24 hours. This is like that from the beginning. And what happens is the, the hardest part is figuring out how to represent the film because I've got a, we don't have Planet of the Apes. There's not a single effect. So that version of the movie that you saw, I've got to cut pieces of Andy out of the volume to, to do things that we didn't shoot on set. I've got to do all these weird things to create this Frankenstein of a movie. And essentially what I do is I work with two editors and I have, I work in the morning with Bill and we work all day. And then um, I work with Weta for the middle part of the day. And that can be like a 10 hour meeting. Right, because we have we're on this link to 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 Weta. They're in New Zealand, and we will just talk shot by shot by shot. It's crazy. Things like an over, like let's say I just want to shoot this over, and I, you get a great take, and I'm just trying to cut back and forth. A different artist does every over. So when I'm trying to, for me, the continuity of shots is critically important. If I'm getting a performance from you, and I can feel the flow of that performance cut to cut, the position between you and the camera doesn't change. Well, when an artist is setting Caesar or whatever actor in front of the camera, and he moves one just a little bit to the left, a little to the right, I'm like, oh, there's all these changes. This is the same take. Why are they moving? Oh, a different artist is doing that shot. So literally, we have meetings about whether or not the over is the same over, just for every single over. Like the things you take as a given that you get because you shot an over, well, you don't have an over yet. So we spend all this time making the overs into overs. And we spend all this time doing that kind of stuff. Then we go performance by performance, 10-hour meeting, every single shot, then have some dinner. And then I go and I work with Stan. And we work till uh, many times, maybe many times till like, uh, so those are my two, Bill and Stan, those are the two editors I work with. We work maybe, many nights we work till like two in the morning. So we would work from about, I would come in at nine and go home at two and then come back the next morning at nine. And it was that way for most of it. By the end I was getting so tired that I had to go home at about midnight or one at the latest, but that's, and we did that for over a year. Well, uh, for what it's worth, the, that has paid off. Because I, 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 I still watch this movie and I don't know how you did it. I don't know how human beings made this. I, don't under, I still don't understand how you got this level of, of nuance in a largely computer-generated movie. It, it doesn't quite make sense to me, but I know I love it and I, I feel like you've made a masterpiece. Are you able to, do you have distance? Can you look at the movie? Do, are there things that stand out um, through the making of the movie is very special to you? Favorite memories, perhaps? Um, it's so weird to look at. You know, here's the other thing. I don't see the movie the way you guys have just seen it until very recently. Like, you're doing it shot by shot, and the reason you're, you're kind of cramming at the end is because you don't have all the shots, which means I don't have all the shots of Caesar. I don't have all those. You know, the avalanche didn't look like the avalanche until the last three weeks. And so you're sitting there for a year and, th and three months going like, what if that avalanche is really bad? And then the first avalanche shot comes and you go, oh, I think that's going to be all right. And it's like, it's just crazy. So, I mean, I only have just seen the movie and yet I also feel like this five-year journey is over. I mean, for me, the, the thing I remember the most that I love is working with those actors and how great they are. I mean, Andy is so special. And the process of going out there, we shot, I mean, that's the other thing. I think people don't know that on these movies, we shoot them all on location. I wanted it to look real. So, you know, like there's a scene where they're rolling in the snow and they're fighting, they've been ambushed. Well, we shot them in the snow. I mean, they're wearing their mocap outfits with wetsuits on under them. We're shooting them in the rain. We're shooting them in the snow. 
Uh, I get to look like the Michelin man, but Andy's got to be in this tight sort of wetsuit. And it was cold. It was crazy. But I love those guys. So that was great. And I certainly love working, you know, with my editors and everybody in post. I love working with Michael Cicchino, who I, I think is incredible. The, uh, the unsung hero of this film. He's but. amazing. And we, you know, and that's that's also my favorite part because it's the one part where, like, you're working like a maniac like this, and then you get to take a week where I basically get to sit and watch like I'm at the front row of this concert going like, oh, this music is so good, this is so great. And you're going, oh, maybe it's going to end and maybe it's going to be all right. It's, it's a, there's so much of the process where you're like, I hope this works. It's, it's pretty crazy. But, but at the same time, the level of detail that you can get into, which you can go down a rabbit hole, but it's also, there's a certain pleasure in that. Yeah, the overs don't match, but I can do all kinds of changes. I can make things very precise. Like when I do the next thing I do and I'm not going to be able to move, you know, the, the head of the actor, like, you know, an inch over to the left and a little farther and throw the focus to a different thing than we shot on, on the set or like I could, I could do minute changes. And so you're constantly rewriting with the pieces that you have, and um, it's not going to be, uh, that's going to be weird for me. I don't know. I might not be able to do it. I don't know. Well, you can always add an orangutan. It's always going to be fine. <laughs> um, well, listen, uh, they're giving us the signal. Uh, thank you all for coming out. I want to thank our guest, Matt, for being here with us. And um, uh, we'll see you on the next one. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. You can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.